My guest, Anne Lauderbach, is a poet, essayist, art critic, and teacher. Born and raised in New York, Lauderbach's youth was marked on one hand by her early education at the Downtown Community School, an experience she's described as pivotal in her understanding of her place in the world, and on the other by the work-related absences and early death of her father and the subsequent turbulence of her family's life. While a student at the University of Wisconsin, Lauderbach switched her focus from painting to poetry, a move which enabled a sometimes peripatetic existence and has produced an acclaimed body of work that includes 10 volumes of poetry and a collection of essays. At the center of Lauderbach's endeavor is an embrace of uncertainty, the fragment, the relationship between consonance and dissonance, and a sustained engagement with the mysteries and possibilities of language. And you've said that writing poetry in America is itself a subversive act, a refutation of and resistance to certain assumptions about what constitutes the public and its interests. In what way is the act of writing poems subversive, and how does it resist the notion of the public and its interests? Well, I think it's subversive because it sets aside, let's say, certain ideas about what constitutes the good life in America. So if you decide to be a poet, you are making a kind of declaration of resistance to certain ideas of what you might want in your world. And so you're stepping outside of the conditions that are proposed in America for success. And obviously, I'm just talking about essentially capitalism and essentially the idea that the more money you make, the happier you'll be. And then the second part of it has to do with the rather sad way in which maybe because of that, poets are very rarely included in public discourse. If somebody wants to know what I think about the political reality or any number of other foregrounded issues, I'm not going to be asked about that because what I think is not included in the way in which people think the world. Why is that, do you think? Because there was a time when poets were elevated to a very high position within the larger culture. It's a very good question. I don't really know the answer to it. I think I've lived through that shift. There was a very interesting thing that I noticed a while ago. I don't notice it anymore that when poets were included in some kind of recognition, it was usually when they died. And it was usually a poet from outside of America. So I remember when Joseph Brodsky died, for example, there was an enormous amount of coverage of his poetics and his thinking. Brodsky was lionized because he had left Russia. And there are people like Auden, who was claimed as an American poet and was probably the last poet who was included in the sense of having something to contribute to the thinking of the world in a very particular kind of public way. But I was aware that the coverage of the life of a poet was almost exclusively directed toward people who would come to America. So it was all about some kind of idealization of how wonderful America is in accepting and lionizing these figures. But very, very rarely were any American poets acknowledged in the same way. Certainly not women. (laughs) 
You've also said, Anne, poetry protects language from serving any master, which is a wonderful and provocative and really powerful thought. How does poetry do this? Well, I guess the how is something I don't quite know how to answer. I think that because poets think the word, they don't even think in sentences or lines, they think in words. And so the kind of care that poets try to take or do take in thinking the word or caring for the word is something that makes it less likely for the contamination of language, which comes through received ideas that are viral. If you're paying attention to each word, that particular kind of reception to the way the world is being presented through whatever master narrative you might be thinking about, you're going to be aware of that and you're going to be kind of resistant to it, not invulnerable to it, but at least you'll have some kind of way of not serving the consensus about the meanings of things, right? So if you care about the word, then you care also about how meanings are made. And meanings are made by putting together words in particular ways. So single words don't have much ultimate meaning. They have a definition, but not a meaning. So if you're thinking about how you construct meaning and you say, okay, the way meaning is constructed is by putting this next to this, next to this, and that relation is meaning, then you're going to be paying attention on the micro level. And so would you distinguish the poet here from the novelist or the writer of nonfiction, the writer of essays? In that respect, I would. I think that novelists might be doing something similar, but not at the level of the word. I think novelists have to be thinking about the arc of narrativity one way or another. And so the way in which meanings are made in novels is obviously by storytelling and so the elaboration of meaning is comes through a whole other set of investments. Essays, I think, is a little bit different, at least for me, because I read so many of them. But I don't read them in the same way as I read poems. And I don't read them with the same sense that the language is being, you know, I want to use some kind of word like protected, which I think is a little too grandiose. We'll talk more about your poems and essays and your process of writing them a little bit later. Now let's hear about the first book on your list. The first book is Way. It's a poem by Leslie Scalapino, who was a friend and colleague of mine who died now maybe 10 years ago, maybe more. I can't really tell. She was a very prolific writer and Way was maybe in the middle of her trajectory. And I chose this for a number of reasons. One is that when I first read it, I was amazed by the fact that the language she uses is quite straightforward, but the relations that she forms in the kind of simple diction are almost uncanny. And I remember thinking that she was the first poet who had managed to rupture the relation between subjects and objects in syntax. There was this flow between the world and the poet and the poem that went both ways, it felt like. And the way in which she punctuated it was with these dashes that were like little pauses or little shift spaces. And then I had this understanding that the poem implied 
And this was so brilliant. The poem implied that the poet was in motion and that the world was also in motion. So instead of this idea of the poet sitting at her desk and conjuring a world, the poet was in the world and moving through it and observing the world as a kind of figure in the landscape. And that I find just profoundly important and real, as if in a way she had learned from maybe film. She was very interested in film. I think that this idea of motion through space. So that was the key. And then she, inside of Way, there are two other things. One is that there's one part that's called the Bum series. So she has this kind of odd way of identifying the characters in the landscape, a man or the bums or these kind of neutral designations that make a kind of anonymity, which I think of as very urban. She was out in Oakland and this kind of urban landscape of the anonymous figures, which I felt was made through this profound compassion she had for just the ordinary folks of the world and the ones who are suffering. She's just incredibly attentive without any sentimentality. And then this kind of searing intelligence that went with that, that was kind of amazing. After she died, there was a service for her at the Poetry Project. And I spoke on behalf of myself and also on behalf of the students that she had taught in the Bard MFA. And I was sitting next to her husband and I asked him, he was a scientist, I asked him something very bold, like, was she ready to die? And he looked at me and he said, Leslie didn't think any poet should die. And I thought, yeah, that seems about right. You've actually said, if I'm not mistaken, that you have an aversion to groups. So what's the aversion? I don't really know. Sometimes I track it back to being aware in New York when I was growing up that there were these groups of men who were gangs. They weren't particularly threatening to me, but I felt threatened by them. This kind of contagion of forming an us and them situation. And I just always feared that. I've always feared the sense that there are people who are inside and then there are people who are outside. And so when poets begin to get designated by a kind of brand, which I always thought it was a way of branding and therefore a way of promoting and a way of excluding, all of which I find personally just incredibly difficult to accept. And I think there are probably some other things that are not so high-minded that are about fear, something about belonging, you know, something about not feeling that I belong pretty much anywhere. And so that's the darker side of it, the less high idea, the sense that I don't really belong anywhere. A key element of your poetics, Anne, is what you call the whole fragment. And you've said, my fear is that my fragments of knowledge are just bits and pieces with too many unbridgeable gaps between them. And so in defense, I've come to celebrate the whole fragment. What do you mean by the whole fragment? And in what way does it narrow some of those unbridgeable gaps? Well, it's a funny idea, isn't it? The whole fragment, it's almost uh, oxymoron. I think it's about the notion that the whole idea of wholeness is a fiction. I mean, in geometry, 
yes, there are objects that are whole, I guess. But you could look at the glass, which is a glass, but you could also say that the glass is a fragment of glassness, a whole fragment. And so this notion came from two different spaces. The first and most memorable for me was seeing a huge Robert Ryman painting at, I think it must have been at Sonnabend at uh, 420 West Broadway. So there was a show. And as you came in on the facing wall was this enormous white painting, which in my memory anyway, was completely uninflected by any gestural mark, anything. It was just like the wall. (laughs) And I remember staring at it and trying to figure it out. And I actually went up to it and decided that maybe it was a kind of play on a minimalist idea and that I was supposed to look behind the painting at the, <laughs> at the, um, you know, the frame. And I went and I looked and I thought, I don't think so. And then I just had this kind of wonderful, I don't know, sort of perception. I thought, Oh, it's a fragment of whiteness. It's a whole fragment of whiteness. When my sister died, then the syntax of my poems began to break up. That was another further understanding that I had of this idea of the fragment. So that I thought, oh, the idea of a narrative is a lie. It's a complete fiction. So we need to let go of that and find another way to think the world in relation to time, which, of course, is the center of my problem with life. (laughs) (laughs) There's, I think, also, at least for me, reading your poems, a sense of wonder at the fragment, you know, at this sort of quite small thing, which in and of itself carries sometimes an enormous amount of suggestion and meaning. Yeah, well, Ezra Pound, who is a terrible human being, from what I can tell, he did have this idea of the radiant detail. I think it was Pound's. And I always thought that was a beautiful idea the radiant detail, and that all the ways in which finally we acknowledge attention is through the detail that is radiant, you know, that is not exactly a symbol, but the thing that if you can acknowledge the detail, then the rest will be less terrifying. Maybe it's that. It's something about being up close. It's something about being aware in the sense of the foreground. Let's and talk about the second book on your list. The second book is Samuel Beckett's Waiting for Godot. What can I say about that? Well, there are several things about Beckett generally and about that play in particular. I saw it, a very, very early performance of it in New York because my godfather, Tom Prito, was theater editor of life. And so every now and then I got to go to the theater with him. And I feel like we went to the opening night because that's what he always did because he had to write reviews. And almost at the same level of the first time I saw Hamlet, I was staggered by the language, I guess, because it's all about language. And I came to understand that Beckett had this investment in language that was probably as great as his master Joyce's, but differently. And that he really believed that as long as we could speak to each other, whatever adversity there was, we would somehow find a way not only to survive, but to be joyful. 
And even though he has this reputation as being this dark, dark, dark figure, I find in Beckett this extraordinary kind of affirmation of the linguistic event as such, as a thing, as an act. And so that was very precious to me and very important to me when I was beginning to think about what it would mean to be a writer. And the other thing is that I regret that I don't have more humor in my work. It's there, but it's kind of under the surface, to say the least. But I think that Beckett also had this really, really dark humor, which I have a great regard for. There's something about the Irish that is so profoundly anchored in a kind of cultural experience. So it's not even irony. Irony is too heady. It comes from some visceral understanding of life that I really respect. And your father died of polio when you were seven years old. And you said that while he was sick, you and your sister, and I'm quoting here, stood one night outside of our rooms and tried to do something like pray. And there's something so beautiful about that and tragic and also primal, I think, the sense that you had, despite growing up in a secular household, that you needed to appeal for divine intervention. How do you remember that moment? And also, have you appealed for divine intervention again since then? Well, the funny thing was that we met between our rooms, and I believe that what we were praying was that he didn't have polio, because we understood somehow that if he had polio, then this other thing called dying was going to happen. So it was this funny kind of before the fact, as it were, prayer before the fact of the prayer. I think that another kind of central theme of my life is trying to figure out what one does with spirit and what one does with faith when there are no gods. I think the crisis that we're in now has a lot to do with that, with the way in which people don't have anything to believe in outside of their own stuff, or some people, not all people, of course. So the moment when the West became largely secular in relation to intellection is a moment that I am constantly brought back to thinking about. Is there a specific moment that you're thinking of, actually? Well, I think that in America, it happens in the middle of the 19th century. I mean, Emerson and the movement toward enlightenment, you know, the whole idea of an enlightenment in which somehow there would be a trust in reason over faith or faith in reason. And that reason then became connected to a certain kind of idea that excluded what I think Emerson calls intuition, the certain kind of way in which reason separates itself away from a kind of larger understanding of the human relation to nature. So that break begins, of course, the Industrial Revolution is part of it, the question of whether man is a machine or an animal, right? That begins to be something that's in play. And whether you can think of the human as a thinking machine, 
as opposed to a thinking animal. <laughs> Seems to me there's a huge difference in that. Even maybe, you know, on the social level, the loss of the community, the place where you go, the church you go, you gather, you sing together, you pray together, you are witnessing your joy and your grief together. That loss seems to me to be profound. So the habitat of religion, the trappings, I don't know about, but it's just very complicated. And I've never come fully to terms with it. I think that's why, you know, people like Leslie... I'm moved by them because she found a way to have a belief system that was not her own, but was attached. I've thought for years now in a kind of bland, not very well thought out way that once you have a public citizenry that loses its faith in the institutions, the secular institutions, you're going to have an incredible crisis. And that's where we are now. I actually was going to ask you about that a little bit later, but I might as well do it now, seeing as you brought it up. I wanted to read you something that you wrote. You said, one cannot imagine a democracy without a belief in its secular institutions. One cannot imagine a democracy without a separation between church and state. One cannot imagine a democracy without a sense of personal accountability. So we live in a moment where our secular institutions are buckling. Trust in them is fragile at best. There are many Americans who would take issue with the separation of church and state. And we've just lived through four years of a president with zero sense of personal accountability. So the question is whether or not we're capable of saving democracy. And that's a big question, I know. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's kind of like the question is whether we're capable of saving the earth. And I think they're related. So it feels to me like we're in the end game and that those questions, which are enormous, I'm looking up now and I see William James, the will to believe. There it is, right? And the way in which James understands that to believe is an act of will, such a wonderful thing to know. So we've lost our will to believe. We've lost our will to invest in the things we believe in or have believed in. And how that happened, I don't think we can attribute this breakage entirely to Donald J. Trump, but he certainly exacerbated it and made it more evident, right, that this was happening. Those of us who live in a kind of privileged universe just went about not paying very much attention to this other universe. I don't know what the answer is. I mean, my own relation to an active politics is extremely moot. I don't know what it would take for the ground to shift, the direction to change. I don't know what will reawaken our belief in these institutions because I think all of them are in question from the Supreme Court to the university, all of them. And I don't know whether, I mean, one can be somewhat diagnostic about it and say, okay, the loss of investment in community, that has to have something to do with it. The lack of, you know, I say this about individual accountability, but I don't actually know what I'm talking about. What does that mean? I've decided that writing checks to organizations is an ugly way to participate 
It upsets me. It doesn't in any way assuage my sense of sorrow at the inequities in the world. So I don't really, I just don't really know the answer to those questions. I don't know how they would get fully addressed, especially given the uh, intransigence that we're living in right now and the virulence of the intransigence. People are so angry and unwavering in their positions. I don't think democracy can live inside of an unwavering, intransigent populace. Well, this is a good time, I think, to talk about the next book on your list, number three. Alice in Wonderland. Let's see. It's actually Alice's Adventures in Wonderland and Through the Looking Glass. I was realizing even this morning that Through the Looking Glass has parts in it that are as vivid to me as her adventures in Wonderland. I guess she was my first acquaintance with a heroine. And the way in which she is heroic appeals to almost everything about my own needs for my life, which is that she's a kind of empiricist, but she's also a sort of problem solver. And she's always questioning why something is or how something is. So she's put through all of these incredible experiences. And each time she comes out of them with a certain larger understanding, I think, of the mysterious wonder of the world. I think that she is the initial understanding I have of the figure of the girl as the idea of potential. The idea that the girl is always about to emerge from her girlness. I love the figure of the girl. I've loved the figure of the girl for a very long time as this notion of free inquiry and free engagement with whatever comes toward her without fearfulness. Alice is never afraid. And I think my whole idea of the path, which is part of what I think of as how life is if we are on a path, that I think of Alice as being on a path <laughs> and encountering figures as she goes, even though she's in Wonderland. I guess of all the 10 books that I've given you, Alice is the one in which the act of the imagination is foregrounded constantly. To imagine something and to have that imagined place become a kind of reality seems to me to be part of what is necessary for the American experiment to happen. You need to have a kind of imagination. And we have lost our political imagination, but there are so few ways in which the purely invented, I mean, imagination has lots of different ways of being, right? But in terms of the Carol book, it is this sublime understanding of inventiveness that is so wonderful and fun and really intelligent. That's the other thing. There's no condescension in this book toward kids or towards childhood or anything. It's quite the opposite. There's this sort of profound love and respect for the ingenuity. That's really the word, the ingenuity of intelligence and delight. You, and wrote a long poem called Alice in the Wasteland, inspired by Lewis Carroll's Alice and also by T.S. Eliot's poem, The Wasteland. 
The poem's central theme is an abiding one for you, the precariousness and seductiveness of language. On one hand, you're suggesting that through language we might find a way to understanding, and on the other, you're saying that this is a false hope, that understanding is always going to be beyond our reach. I wonder if your sense of this paradox has evolved over time as your relationship with language has deepened. You know, the sort of logocentric world is endangered, as we know, because the use of language has become so short-circuited and truncated and seems not to be really on the whole about understanding. I was having this conversation with my dear friend, Michael Brinson, and he was talking about his parents and how one of them became a Christian humanist. That was his father and his mother was drawn to Jewish mysticism through Freud, because I think she was a psychiatrist. But both of them had lived through, one of them through Hitler and the other one through Stalin, whatever that means. I mean, both of them had escaped from these dire situations. I had told him that I had run into a student who had said to me at the end of a long list of very disparaging remarks about a number of things that they thought that the whole human enterprise or human project was bankrupt and hopeless, which is pretty upsetting. And I remember saying to this person, you should really try not to be a cynic. And they said, I don't know what the difference between being a cynic and not believing is. So after that conversation, I wrote to him and I said, you know, The problem maybe is that most of the generations behind us have no idea about what Jewish mysticism or Catholic humanism is. We seem to have fewer and fewer fundamental philosophical grounds on which to build our own opinions about things. And that seems to me to be also about language and also obviously about education. I feel that that loss of some sets of ideas or foundational belief systems makes everybody so scrappy and singular and isolated. Part of the crisis of language is that there's nothing on which things are based anymore other than one's point of view. You attended the downtown community school until about eighth grade, I think. And as I said in the introduction, you've said that it was pivotal to your understanding of your place in the world, which you've described as being a radical idealist. And you've also said that your kind of radical idealism has nothing at all to do with liberalism. So what is a radical idealist for you? What does it mean to be a radical idealist? And how does it differ from liberalism? Well, I deserve that question, don't I? Because I make these kind of grandiose (laughs) claims and then I have to back them up. My sense of being a radical idealist is that because of that school, I guess, we were taught so profoundly that we were never to think of ourselves as better than anyone else, (laughs) different from, but we're not better than. So that idea that we had to come into our relation to others by a sense of equality on the very simple level of not being better than was ingrained very strongly. 
And then there was this other component, which was that experience was key to understanding. So if we were going to talk about the Amish and the Mennonites in Pennsylvania, we went to the farm and we spent a week on a farm with Mennonites and got to know what they ate and how they behaved and saw their farm. And so there was all this kind of hands-on idea. And that was coming out of John Dewey, I think, where he understood experience as being central to an understanding of experimentalism. And I took that very seriously. I thought I had to go and do it in order to know it. And so that's a contradiction to this other kind of knowledge. They're like they're two different knowledge bases. The idealism in that little community was so palpable. And the understanding, for example, also that art was a deeply consoling and binding thing that humans did to bring each other together through their differences that was inculcated so fully. So that's the idealism. The radicality has to do with coming to distrust the whole liberal position feeling that it is a position of what is now being called always elitism. But it's a very particular kind of elitism, which I think is related, in my mind anyway, to a certain insularity, a certain sense that indeed those of us who are in the liberal bubble are better than, we're better than, we're smarter, we're better informed, we had nicer things, we've succeeded because we're so special. I find all of that absolutely repulsive, actually. So I'm sorry to go on like this, but it has become increasingly over the years more intense, the sense of not wanting to feel that I'm part of that. Whether I'm a radical or not, I don't know. My parents were radicals, I think. And I think that the little school was a radical school. It was not a little liberal school. It was a radical school. It believed in things in a kind of radical way. It wasn't full of its own conceit. It wasn't so sure of itself. It just gave me a sense that one had to be careful not to think that the zone one was in was the best zone or the only zone to be in, but there were always going to be other places and other ways and other forms of living. And maybe inside of that kind of talk is something about my questions about how change happens. I don't think anybody who knows me would call me a radical, but I think my thinking is capable of a kind of radicality. I mean, if radical means, as it does initially, it means original, right? It means the thing that is the root, it's the beginning. That thing, I think, is really what I'm interested in, rather than the kind of popular understanding of radicality that comes out of political idea. And we may well come back to this, but let's now hear about the next book on your list, number four. That seems to be John Ashbery's The Double Dream of Spring. Yes. Huh. Okay. My copy of it has a green cover, and it says, For Anne Lauderback, with love, thanks, etc., John Ashbery, June 20th, 1971. So that is somewhere around when I met him. And I met him because I invited him to London to be part of a 
series I put together called Poetry Information, Contemporary French, East European, and American Poetry. The Double Dream of Spring, I chose it because when I heard him read, I remember feeling absolutely astounded and confused, both. And I came to realize that whenever I was confused by something in art, it was usually going to be very interesting. So I always took my confusion as a sign. (laughs) But I was really in a kind of bewildered space with it. And I remember, (laughs) this is a famous story that I told many times, but after his reading, I went up to him and I said, oh, Mr. Ashbury, I love cliches. And he looked at me in a way that I came to know so well, this kind of look of bemused kindness. And he said, and they love you. (laughs) (laughs) Tuesday. (laughs) Took me years before I really understood what that meant, you know, that I was a walking cliche just at that moment, indeed. Anyway, the Double Dream of Spring is just a kind of example of this wonderful, flexible, inclusive, what Angus Fletcher called the middle voice, this voice that was never self-promoting, but always generous towards the world and towards the world of language. And anything could happen in a poem. And that was the thing that was so exciting for me. It was like, oh, anything can happen in a poem. Anything can come onto the page of the poem. And he could move between a kind of abstract diction and a very, very concrete, specific diction. And I loved that, the fluidity with which he moved back and forth between those two possibilities, not to mention the fact that he could also do the other kind of movement between a high rhetorical space and a very, very common normative space. So it became, for me, the Ashbarian permission, which is the way I always thought of it. He gave me permission to make poems that could range and move about inside of themselves and were not limited to some kind of idea or some kind of subject matter even. I think up until then, I had seen Henry James, for example, the writings of James as being this sort of pinnacle of the beautiful possibilities of language as being so delicate and so subtle. And it wasn't until Ashbury that I thought that something like that Jamesian inclusiveness and openness could happen in a poem. Also humor, lovely kind of delicate, sweet humor. And the humor often came from a kind of turn, a kind of sudden turn, the way in jazz it happens. People sort of make a sigh. It's like that. And when he read, there were these lovely moments of laughter that would come from noticing these little shift spaces that he was so adept at. The incredible absorption of the poem in its own linguistic capabilities, I think, was just wonderfully reassuring to me. Up until then, I think there was this concept, especially for women, that the poem had to be neat and small and precise and like a little vessel. I didn't have that in me, really. I always wanted the thing to become elaborate and open and changing. And I wanted more from the poem than that. And I definitely was desperate to get out of my own psychological, self-absorbed, narcissistic self. 
And that was the other thing that was so liberating. It's like, oh, here's this sensibility, but it's not about him. <laughs> and, and I wanted so badly to be able to make poems that weren't about me. Well, I'm going to ask a question about you, if that's okay. In your house, you have an index card with a handwritten text on it, and it's titled The Thrum. And it says, The thrum is a cross between a drum and a string instrument and a sort of chime instrument. It's made out of a tin can, silk with lacquer covering for the drum, metal strips U-shaped for the chimes, and wire for the strings. And it's signed Anne Lauderbach with the word made crossed out just above your name. How old were you when you wrote this? And from where did this chimeric instrument spring? I think it was an assignment in my class at downtown community school to make up an instrument. My intuition tells me that I was in the maybe the sixth grade. I feel like it was an assignment from my wonderful teacher whose name was Lee Hawkins. I have no idea how I came up with that thing. It's <laughs> <laughs> such a great thing. <laughs> and there's something so touching about the fact that you crossed out the word made before signing your name. <laughs> yeah. Well, are we the maker or the made? I think it was just part of this sort of wonderful invitation that was constantly on offer there for us to, you know, make things up. And I can almost remember this assignment, but I don't know whether the assignment was to make up a musical instrument or whether it was just to make something up, but I think it was to make a musical instrument. I'm guessing that we all had to do that. And did you actually have to try to make it or you just had to imagine it? I don't know. I think only imagine it. I don't remember trying to construct that thing. Well, that's probably lucky. It would have been tricky. To... <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. So the thrum, it seems to me that it's a proto-instruction piece. And its sculptural quality makes me think about your poems. In your introduction to your collection of essays, The Night Sky, you say in a passage on the necessity of loving the various components of language. Should I use the or a with that noun? And what's the basis for the choice? Does this line range left or does it jump from the white space of the page, rupturing the expected template? There's something sculptural to me also about your approach to language. And I wonder if you see it that way also. What a great question. I love that question because I think that's exactly right. I think I have a spatial imagination. I think I see the world, even language, in spatial relation. And I even think that even the whole fragment is posited as the thing that you can walk around and that you can see from many sides. <laughs> I think when I make decisions of the kind that are mentioned in that passage, it's partly about imagining the relation of meaning as being spatial as well as temporal. And I think there's often a kind of visualization that goes with the work, but it's not pictorial, which is different. It actually doesn't feel pictorial. It feels, I'm not quite sure even how to describe it. There are things that are made with 
three-dimensional imaging software that rotate, that have the suggestion of being fully formed things. But of course, they're just flat images on a screen, just as words are flat on a page. But the poems themselves have this very dimensional form to them. And also, I think there's partly because of the way you write, this sense of moving around them. So we're sort of seeing them from multiple places. Richard, I think it's really incredibly accurate, actually, in terms of my conceptual thinking. I had written this poem, and when I introduced it, I said, this is a much more discursive poem than I usually make. And in the Q&A, somebody asked what had made me do that. And I thought, well, that's kind of interesting, because I don't really know. I mean, I didn't really know how to answer him. But what I said also was that Usually when I make a longer poem, it's in parts. And the way in which I think about those parts is architectural. So that if the poem is a kind of house or a kind of building, that you're moving down a hall and then you turn and you go into another space and then you turn again and you go into another space. And so the poems are made by these kinds of architectonic shifts that are about finding another aspect of the same thing. (laughs) And it's interesting also because at some point when I was reading Emily Dickinson's poems, I was absolutely sure that her dashes are spatial and that they're there to indicate not a gap, but a turn. The word circumference comes up over and over again in Dickinson. And it's like she's constantly moving around the thing and coming at it from these different angles. And let's hear about your next book, number five. Baudelaire Fractal, Lisa Robertson. I think a lot of the people that I most admire are way more erudite than I am. And I am always attracted to them, the kind of erudition. And Lisa Robertson is a truly erudite in a kind of wonderful, unacademic way. So I like erudition that is not tied to the academy. (laughs) She takes Baudelaire's Paris and attaches it or marries it to the Paris that her character Hazel is in, in our time. It actually begins in a Paris that I recognize very, very clearly from the early days, the first time I was in Paris, the sort of sense of these funny hotels and these tiny rooms and these odd relations to the bathroom down the hall. And I want to use this word, she's scrupulous in her choices. So the sentences are just so deliciously made and feel like she's building this beautiful structure from these words. It's partly a narrative and it's partly not. My copy is filled with little marks, which I make when I'm reading and I'm loving something. In a way, my love of this book is because I wish I had written it. (laughs) (laughs) And also that now that she's written it, I can't write it. Also, astonishingly, when I was talking before about the girl, she also has a passage, a whole passage in here about the girl. And the other thing that's so amazing in this book is that at a certain point toward the end, there's a long, long passage in which she talks about her relation to garments, to clothes. And even when she was absolutely impecunious in Paris, 
she would find these high-end used clothes by very famous designers and buy these things for very little. And there's lots of stories about her procuring these, particularly jackets. And then there's this brilliant sequence in which it becomes clear that for her, (laughs) writing and tailoring are the same thing. Or tailoring is a metaphor for writing and writing is a metaphor for tailoring. And that is so beautifully elaborated. And she takes a long, long time talking about this one jacket. And as you're reading, you think, oh, she's talking about writing. (laughs) And it's so brilliant and also so fearless. There is a way in which Lisa Robertson is somebody who's very little known, but there are people who discovered her and then she becomes this kind of key writer for a certain kind of ambition, a certain kind of respect for how the thinking world and the feeling world can be fully engaged with each other. When you were studying at the University of Wisconsin, you took a class on the Old Testament with Madeleine Duran, and you've said, and I'm quoting here, that it was astonishing. I mean, really, I was astonished. At that moment, I had a kind of awakening of intellectual consciousness that affected me very deeply, the language in relation to ideas and beliefs. What was it about the language of the Bible and that left such a deep impression? I'm not sure it was the language of the Bible so much as it was Madeline Doran's way of speaking about it. I mean, I remember we spent weeks and weeks on Isaiah, the way in which she was able to show us how the voice of Isaiah and second Isaiah and the differences between them and the kind of profound engagement with the text is what was so powerful for me. I realized that you could read a book that seemed to be quite straightforward and realize that, no, there's all this other information and all this other meaning that's there also. And it wasn't like it was under it. It was on the surface. You just had to know how to read it. And I think it was that way in which my habits of reading up until then, I think had been kind of not only haphazard, which they still are, haphazard both in the sense of this or this or this, but also haphazard and not really paying close attention. Really? That's very surprising. Well, I just didn't know how to, let's put it that way. I didn't know what it meant to pay close attention to a text. I would just get completely taken up. And maybe it was really about being analytical and that being able to analyze something was not going to be destructive. So that was really powerful for me, that the analysis did not have to then leave the thing in smithereens (laughs) and turn it to some kind of instruction manual. Or take the life out of it, yeah. Exactly, take the life out of it. That it would actually give more life to it. And so that was extremely exhilarating for me. And her rigor and her own enthusiasm in her rigorousness. And as I wrote to you, she also taught Shakespeare. So she had this really extraordinary capacity to reveal. Yeah, there was a sort of this understanding of revelation, which I loved, because I thought that books should be revelatory. 
And it was so wonderful to read these powerful chapters and to not be concerned about their religious meaning other than as texts. You know, we weren't in church, we were in school. So that was also very exciting for me. In your essay, Disobedient Choices, you wrote that Eve made her decision to eat the fruit from the tree of knowledge out of a daring, courageous curiosity. She decides she's willing to risk everything, life itself, for the rewards of finding out about life, about pleasure and wisdom. And reading these lines, I can't help but think about the young Anne Lauderbuck. I wonder how much you identify with Eve here. And also looking back, if you feel that there's a cost to taking that risk or those risks. Well, disobedient choices. Yeah. Yeah. There's a huge cost because you're in a constant agonistic relation to authority. So you have to constantly figure out what authority is even or where to trust it, or whether to trust it. You put yourself in a position of constantly taking risks and not really understanding or knowing what the consequences of those risks are. So this idea of flying in the face of what is expected or even desired or wanted by some other set of authorities, (laughs) but Since I didn't have any responsible parents from a fairly early age, I had to kind of invent authority for myself. And in that, what happens, I think, when you start doing that very early is that you're not very trustful. So one of the regrets I have about this particular way of going about living is that I never did learn to trust very much. And when you don't trust very much, you also have a very hard time making commitments and being sure of your commitments. And I think that's true of me also. My picturing of Eve, I mean, I like this picture of Eve a lot. And I also like the fact that I ask people, I ask my students all the time, what are the two trees in Eden? And they never notice that it's the tree of life and the tree of knowledge, right? And I say, no, it's the tree of knowledge of good and evil. That's right. It's not the tree of knowledge. And if you understand the knowledge of good and evil, what we're talking about is knowledge of dualities, of yes and no, of male-female, of all the ways in which language puts us in the position of having to be aware of extremes of difference. The reason why they were told they can't eat of knowledge of good and evil is because once they have that knowledge, they'll have all the other knowledges that go with the knowledge of opposites and actually will fall into language is the way I thought of it. And the tree of life is the tree of singularity, of course. It's like like there's only life. There's no death, right? It's not life or death. It's just life. So if they'd stayed there, they would have stayed in the unity of the one but they had to fall into difficulty of dualities. And she was brave enough to do that, to enter into the discourse, actually, really. And then I had this other fantasy that the snake is actually a tongue. So the snake is actually speech, actually discourse. Book number six on your list is... The Neutral by Roland Barthes. Well, there are lots of things about this book that are wonderful. It's notational, and it's like a beautiful map of somebody's mental life. This book is also here as a kind of talisman 
for all the mostly French thinkers that at a certain moment, many of us read with, at least I did, with great pleasure and joy. And Bard being the kind of most clearly aligned, I guess, to this wonderful shift space between philosophical thinking and literary thinking and poetic thinking and aesthetic thinking. I mean, there's a wonderful way in which Bart just is so restless and so brilliant in his accommodation of what interests him. So the neutral turns out to be the kind of summation of that kind of eclecticism, I think, which clearly by now you can understand that I really admire. And it is actually filled with whole fragments. That is actually the nature of this book. These little paragraphs in which he mentions something and then something else and then something else. And then in the deep sense of this notion of the neutral as a place of reception, a place of openness and the hand that is open and the soul that is ready to accommodate or to be informed by the thing outside of itself. And he has so much of that in him. It's a beautiful sensibility. And also you could treat this book as a kind of index where if you followed all of the things that he mentions, all of the figures that come up, it would be a wonderful way to kind of pursue life of the mind. Obviously, for me, I'm always looking for some kind of ethical ground for being. For me, philosophy is always about that search for an ethical ground. It's not for some kind of abstract Kantian something. It's something very, very practical. And I think he's got that too, the kind of pragmatics. In thinking about the term the neutral and also what you've been saying, I'm reminded of two things actually that you've written. One is in the poem Alice in the Wasteland, where Alice asks, what is the color of chaos? And the white rabbit tells her that the color of chaos is gray like a sock, actually, which is really quite funny. And then in your recent essay, The Entangled Imagination, you again invoke gray as the color of entanglement. And we tend to think of gray as a neutral color. Gerhard Richter, for instance, has said, gray is the epitome of non-statement. It does not trigger off feelings or associations. It's actually neither visible nor invisible. Like no other color, it is suitable for illustrating nothing. So I'm not fully sure of what my question is here, other than this relationship of neutrality in this book to entanglement, actually, and to the fragment. And in fact, the very opposite, I think, of what Richter is saying. So great to me is the neutral. Yes, that's right. But the neutral, without it, we can't see anything particular. It is the ground on which everything else if you put something, a color on gray, the color is usually very particularly beautiful. And so we need this neutral space in order for the particulars of the world to be more discernible. It is the neutral in that sense, this kind of receptive ground. And then the question about entanglement is curious because I think in that piece I wrote, what I was saying is that gray in some ways also represents ambiguity. You do say that. Yeah, that we need to accept this place of uncertainty <laughs> in order for some kind of fluidity or movement to be possible. 
because we're now in this place where there seems to be no gray area at all. So there's no place to move. So if I'm calling gray the ground, I'm also saying that it's the neutral ground, the ground where you can be and be safe because it's neutral in the political sense of neutral as opposed to the coloristic sense of neutral. And entanglement appears to be this word that's now being used quite frequently to suggest that everything is in relation to everything else, everything living, that we're all entangled with each other. But not only we, but all living things are entangled with each other. I think the example everyone is using is the world of mushrooms. And I think this begins with Deleuze and Guattari talking about the rhizomatic. It begins there, for me, that wonderful moment in which they say, we're tired of the tree. And I remember being shocked by this sentence, we're tired of the tree. And then I understood, oh, what they mean is that they're tired of this hierarchical thinking and the verticality of things, and that we need to be thinking horizontally. So that seems to me to be profound and important, and potentially even salvation, because without a rethinking of the sort of geometry of life, not as something that you're climbing up, but that has this kind of horizontality, you're moving across it and through it, then I think we begin to make different kinds of distinctions because we don't see people as above us and people below us, but people beside us or things beside us. And so I was going on from there to talk about my relation to nature, which is really kind of interesting and has become more interesting because I've been living more or less in the country now for a while, even though I have, I think, a totally urban sensibility. But one of the things that I'm learning is that you can't control it and you shouldn't control it, nature. You have to give it some space to do what it needs to do. And so my anger at the groundhogs for eating all the foliage off of my zinnias, it's like, okay, so they ate the foliage. Now they look like lollipops. They're kind of great. That's okay. <laughs> and then and then these amazing turkeys that look like something out of a medieval tapestry. They come walking. They love the way they walk. You know, they have this weird, delicate walk, even though they're very ungainly characters. So they're climbing up and they're breaking things and they're really after the bird seed. And I'm thinking, and okay, so they're having some bird seed and they're making a mess of a couple of your plants. So what's the big deal? It's theirs as well as yours. After you finished university, you took a trip to Europe. And as you mentioned earlier, you ended up moving to London, where you worked at the ICA and also in art book publishing at Thames and Hudson. And after seven years, feeling in part that the British would never truly accept you because you were a foreigner, you returned to New York, where you worked as a waitress in the Broom Street Bar, you worked in galleries for a period. What was it like? I think at that time you were about 30 years old to be back in New York and really beginning again. Well, it was scary because there was a certain moment when I thought, oh my God, I'm never going to not be a waitress. I was at the Broom Street Bar for way longer than I had imagined. But I also, I couldn't figure out what to do and how to reconnect. I mean, I had an amazing seven years and I met incredible people 
And I was given permission to do all kinds of things that I was barely capable of doing. I felt very, very lucky. And so coming back, it was definitely like starting all over again. I didn't understand how to convert any of that experience, all that work, all those jobs I had had into something in America. I didn't just know what that was going to look like. I didn't particularly want to go into publishing. I had come a bit of a way to having a sense of myself as a poet and writer. It was still very shadowy, but it was my main ambition by then. And I just was at a loss, actually. And at the same time, I landed up in Soho when there was this brilliantly exciting talk about horizontality, the sort of sense that everything was happening on the street and that anything could happen. So there was this really brilliant feeling that the world was just filled with the kind of serendipity and spontaneity that only the urban allows for. And so even though I was waiting on table, the people who were coming in were amazing people. <laughs> so, you know, one day it was Saul DeWitt, and one day it was Steve Reich, and one day it was Tom Noskowski, and one day it was Elizabeth Murray, or Paula Cooper for that matter. And then one day, you know, one of the people who came in quite often was this guy, Max Potech, who had a gallery directly across the street from where I was living on Spring Street and West Broadway up on the top floor. And he was across the street, along with two other galleries, including Rene Block, which is where Voice came. Yeah, that's right, with the Coyote. Yeah. Anyway, he came in one day and he said, do you live on Spring Street? And I said, yes. And he said, do you want to know how I know? And I said, yes. And as soon as I said yes, I knew why. Because I had only one window, but he could see in it. Oh. So I thought, oh, that's really creepy. Yeah. But he was a very strange man, Max. And he was always cutting corners. And he had built himself a little loft in his office where he was sleeping. So he could see directly into my little weird garret. So then he invited me to Washington to see a show he had curated in his gallery in Washington. So he had two galleries. And I thought, uh, I don't know, it seems almost a little bit risky to go to Washington with this person I don't know at all to see the show. But I thought, all right, I'm going to try it. That's my disobedient. Here's the risk again, yeah. Yeah. And so I did, and we went down, and he had done this little show of Warhol. I think it was Warhol. And, of course, he made a pass at me, and, of course, I had to kind of finesse that. And the whole way down and the whole way back, this is my memory anyway. I'm sure this is slightly skewed. I talked about art a lot, and he knew a lot about art. So we came back, and then I think there was like three days in which there was no communication, and then he phoned me and said, can we meet? And I said, yes. And we met at the Broom Street Bar, and he was very serious, and he said, Anne, I think you're you know, a really terrific girl, and I'd be very excited if you became my girlfriend, but I need a director for my gallery. <laughs> I remember having to play this kind of weird game of disappointment 
Uh, whereas in my heart, I was so excited and happy. I think I ordered a, a, a Jack Daniels, even though it was 11 in the morning. So I got hired. And you felt no pressure to also be his girlfriend? No, no, no. He made it very clear that he was making this choice. And I was thinking to myself, you're not making this choice because I wouldn't be your girlfriend and I'm not about to become your, I don't want to be your girlfriend, but I'm, I'll have to pretend that I want to be your girlfriend because <laughs> then your ego won't be too upset with the fact that I'm thrilled <laughs> to be asked to be the director of your gallery. It was very, very useful to be there then because I got to really, really see firsthand the way in which the art world took off into another kind of understanding of the relationship between artists, art, collectors, gallerists, and critics. That set was all in this incredible, ferocious restructuring. Lots of money around, lots of positioning. There was already money around then, because I was under the impression that one of the reasons the scene was so vibrant was because there weren't really yet big careers to be had. There weren't, but they were incipient in very clear ways. You could feel that this was happening, that people in my generation I knew were having shows and then they were selling their work. And then there was just this very, very powerful understanding of power and how power was moving through and across fashion, real estate, and a certain kind of wherewithal and canniness. It was very interesting and ultimately terrible because it happened so quickly. Things became so rigid so fast and the distinctions that were made became so acute, that it was very, very hard for me to stay. Did you see people change during that period in that sort of transition? I don't know whether I would put it that way. I saw people get caught up in these trajectories of careerism and potential. People started making enough money to buy lofts and then to have wonderful furniture and then to have, I mean, it went on. If you stayed poor, I was poor, <laughs> but right next to me, somebody was getting rich fast. And so this beautiful moment that I described earlier of feeling that everything was possible and everything was molten and everything was happening at ground level, that shifted so quickly. Time for another book, Anne, number seven. Mm, message from the library, William Kentridge. Let us try for once, 15 and a half thoughts in the library. Of all these books, I guess this is what's left of my great love of reading books about artists and by artists and criticism. And I know we had T.J. Clark for a long time on this list, sort of sad not to have him here. But I guess he's going to just have to, Kentridge has to stand in for all of that powerful connection I feel to artists and to art making and thinking about art. And this, I actually was there Sunday, December 9th, 2018, in the Brooklyn Public Library when he gave this talk. It's made kind of similarly to some of these other books that I've talked about with these parts, with 15 and a half parts, with titles. It's this wonderful attestation of presence so not only was he there present, but the way in which he spoke about his work and his thinking 
was a performance of presence, the performance of actually delineating the ways in which he makes his work or thinks about his work. So incredibly generous and provocative at the same time. So the smell of old books is number one. I draw in old books. Sometimes I draw in the books themselves, but generally speaking, I dismember the books, pulling the cover from the glue, holding the spine, slicing through the spring that is holding the bound signatures and separating the pages. It's an undoing of what Dante describes at the end of Paradiso, when all the pages and all the leaves of the Cuman Sibyl fly through the air and are gathered into one single book, a chaos of knowledge forming itself into a coherence. So look how fast he went from there to there. And this idea of cutting up the books where he's standing in the library, which he was very conscious of, that that's where he was. And then he talks about the books that he chooses and the prisoner of the book. And then there's a wonderful section called Pause, and then a section on provisionality. Anyway, just the most delightful And again, this idea of a great intelligence with an enormous amount of knowing, being able to convert that into a gesture of inclusivity and openness and provocation. The thing that Kentridge is able to do that is very rare is that he has really strong political beliefs and he has really strong understanding of the history of South Africa. And it's all in his work. And the work doesn't turn into the kind of gloomy, brittle recitation of the cruelties, but rather it's all about transformation, all about taking all of that darkness and turning it into the light. And that to me is just the most superlative thing an artist can do, really, is not to deny the darkness and the brutality and the greed and the cruelty, but to understand it and then do something with it. It's this understanding that there's no point in making something, quotes, beautiful, if that beauty does not take on, at some level, the thing that is thoroughly unbeautiful. And so the great artists of the world have always been able to do that, which is why we take comfort, because they don't deny Even beginning with, or not even beginning with, but in the West, you know, all of those crucifixes, all of those moments of Mary with the dead child in her arms, all of that, it's all about this kind of idea of transformation that makes it bearable. You've written about the act of reconfiguring in the poem, saying that certain givens or inheritances which cannot be factually altered can be reconfigured sometimes beyond all recognition. And then you continue to say that this allows for a new field of possibilities. So I wonder if in turn this act of reconfiguring in the poem brings about for you a new way of seeing and experiencing the world. I don't know whether it brings about a new way of experiencing the world, I think it has brought about a new way of experiencing a relation to the world. I've understood that the way in which you are in the world can be configured so that, for example, I might have spent a lot of my life feeling sorry for myself, feeling that 
taking all those risks and being very promiscuous with my heart could make me quite bitter and feeling quite angry. But even though I am often depressed because I think I'm a depressive, I don't feel in the least bitter or angry. And I feel also astonishingly lucky that I've had the life I've had. I mean, lucky in many, many respects. Many, many years ago, I said to myself, you mustn't get to the point where you're an old person and then you feel regret. And that was a very big thing. And that was one, not to feel too much regret and also not to feel that I had been deceived in some way, that I had deceived myself, this idea of deception, that somehow I had to try and stay as clear about myself in relation to the world as I could, and to keep that alignment as truthful as possible. Because I think once you stray from that alignment, you're bound to find yourself in places that you don't want to be and saying and being things you don't want to say and be. Just to continue with this a little bit, we've touched on this earlier in the conversation as well. You've spoken about the view from the edge, and you've actually said that one can see better from the periphery than you can from the center. Yet you've also said that you see yourself somewhat painfully as a transitional figure, one who's between all the time. In what way do you feel transitional? And I wonder if you would trade it for a seat at the center. I don't know. You know, I don't know what the center is. I'm not sure that in poetry there is a center. I wish I were a better poet, and I wish that my work had inspired more critical thinking and maybe even more poets to be excited by the work. I'm very unsure of that, and that makes me sad. I don't know what being at the center would look like. If it means that I would write a different kind of poetry than I write, I don't think I would want that. I don't think I'm willing to be less complex or less difficult, if that's what the word is. I think I'm right about the periphery. I think you do see better. But I think also, since you're already peripheral, as one is, you kind of double your periphery (laughs) if you're not careful. So then you just feel like you're not in the conversation. Well, let's move on to book number eight on your list. Well, you know, the first and the last, right? I mean, really, the book number eight is the Essays and Lectures of Ralph Waldo Emerson, known to his friends as Waldo. He is sort of my lodestar, the kind of ground place for me. I am not an expert. I have not read all of Emerson. I might, maybe before I die, read almost all. But he's always been, or for a very, very long time, a kind of thinking figure, person who thinks in writing. And when he was thinking in writing, he was thinking about things of great significance for America and for persons in a way that I have always found very moving and useful. And I think that one of the ways that I find Emerson interesting and important is that he really makes the move in his life as well as in his thinking from being a person of a really profound religious belief, a minister, a pastor, to a person who had to think about the world without faith. 
he had to move his faith away from the church and into the world. And that act in itself was something of enormous courage and bravery. And then once he had done that, then he explores what it means to have done that and to have found a way to try to reconfigure what he had learned from reading a lot of the Germans and certainly from people like Coleridge to try and rethink how their thinking might apply to this new yet unapproachable America, as he called it. Inside of that are these talismanic ways of saying things that are so beautiful. Like in one of my books, I use it as the epigraph. People wish to be settled only insofar as they are unsettled. Is there any hope for them? That understanding of the frailty and precarity of life is everywhere in him. And then with that is this sense of wonder, you know, that great, great passage in nature where he talks about when he's crossing Boston Common, experiences joy to the point of fear. I mean, he has this kind of moment when he loses his ego. I've actually had that experience. I know exactly what that is to have this absolute loss of sense of self and a sense that you are one with the universe. There's something experientially in him that is so brave and so beautiful because of his trust in language and in thinking. He's like Arendt that way. He really thought that if thinking was at the core of your being, you would never choose evil. <laughs> and it's very close to Arendt's the same idea that she had about thinking. And then this other piece of his discourse, which is between basically freedom and fate. And fate, which I think he calls the beautiful necessity. Fate is limit, is always the limit space. And freedom, of course, is this idea of the unlimited or this free will, which was all in the air then. There was all this talk about the will. And then he comes up with a sort of sense of flow, which is so contemporary, and this need for a way in which freedom and necessity have to be basically entangled with each other and flow into each other, not to be polarized. And then this idea that I think he comes to, which is that the human is a maker and not just the result of having been made. So then you have this idea of agency and activity and doing as opposed to being settled for your fate. There's so much of Emerson that is, I think for me, reassuring more than anything. When I was in college, I took this course in American intellectual history, and I learned in that class about this thing called transcendentalism. I remember being completely excited by this idea of transcendentalism. And I thought, what a, it was just such a brilliant idea that somehow the notion of God could be in nature, which is the way I interpreted that idea that the transcendent was kind of near rather than far. So for him to have gone from being a transcendentalist, which I guess is kind of idealism, to being a pragmatist or beginning to be one of the founding figures of pragmatism in America, that also to me is something that is just extraordinarily wonderful and that he allows for this new way of thinking about causation even, and that the pragmatists seem to be more interested in what the consequences of things were than where they came from. 
people misconstrue self-reliance, I think, hugely, because I think that he's saying you can do anything you want to do without needing to know anything, but he doesn't say that at all. He says that you have to have enough to go on to become self-reliant. You can't just opt it. He's just this very rich, thorough, capable inquiry. It's always an inquiry for him. He's always trying to figure it out. He's not a systemic thinker. I guess that's another reason why I'm attracted to him. You're not going to come up with a system with Emerson. You're just going to come up with a man trying to figure things out of the most profound nature at a very, very particular moment in history where somebody had to be doing that. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like now. It is like now. It is exactly like now. Yeah. And you wrote two essays that I know of in response to the attacks of September 11th, 2001. One of them ends with the sentence, poetry, I want to suggest, is one way not to be surprised by death, which is really an extraordinary line. Where does that come from? How does poetry prepare us for death? I don't think I'm interested in a poetics that doesn't acknowledge mortality at some level, right from the get-go. It goes back to what we were talking about before with Kentridge, that certainly poetry since modernism has had to contend with finality, with the finite in a very particular kind of way. So there's that part of it, which is sort of literal. But then there's a way in which I guess for me, personally, making poems is always a way of being hyper-aware of being alive. In being hyper-aware of being alive, one is also simultaneously hyper-aware of not being alive. So it has this kind of dual role of the wonder and preciousness and amazement of being alive, and then simultaneously that the way in which you understand all of those things is because it is not forever. So why in that piece I said that poetry, I want to suggest, is one way of not being surprised by death? I'm not quite sure how that came to me then. Maybe it was conditioned by the feeling that the world's response to that horrific event was so catastrophically misguided in its inability to contend with the invitation to change one's position toward the world, which was really something that might have come out of it instead of this massive retaliatory relation to terror. At the end of each interview, I ask my guests to read a selection from one of the books they've chosen. And what are you going to read for us today? Lots to choose from. I was thinking of reading a piece from Sunis Mended, which is in the Ashbury book, but I think maybe I'm going to read two very, very well-known passages from Emerson, since we ended on Emerson, which is the very opening, not even the whole paragraph, the opening and then the closing of experience, since I think it's my central text in many ways. We haven't really talked about experience, qua experience in this conversation, but I think that it is the kind of key to a lot of the ways in which I've come to think the world. As you know, this particular essay, it's one of his shorter essays, goes through this really remarkable phasal relation to 
in relation to the death of his son, Waldo. And he says, I grieve that I cannot grieve. And he's clearly in a place of near paralysis in terms of being able to feel anything, which is, of course, one of the first feelings that can happen when you're grieving. The piece starts famously this way. Where do we find ourselves in a series of which we do not know the extremes and believe that it has none? We wake and find ourselves on a stair. There are stairs below us, which we seem to have ascended. There are stairs above us, many a one, which go upward and out of sight. But the genius which, according to the old belief, stands at the door by which we enter and gives us the leaf to drink, that we may tell no tales, mix the cup too strongly, and we cannot shake off the lethargy now at noonday. So there he is in a kind of stupor. And at the end, this is what he says. Patience and patience, we shall win at the last. We must be very suspicious of the deceptions of the elements of time. It takes a good deal of time to eat or to sleep or to earn a hundred dollars and a very little time to entertain a hope and an insight which becomes the light of our life. We dress our garden, eat our dinners, discuss the household with our wives, and these things make no impression are forgotten next week. But in the solitude to which every man is always returning, he has a sanity and revelations, which in his passage into new worlds he will carry with him. Never mind the ridicule. Never mind the defeat. Up again, old heart, it seems to say. There is victory yet for all justice, and the true romance which the world exists to realize will be the transformation of genius into practical power. Beautiful, amazing. Patience and patience, we shall win at the end. Anne Borderbach, thank you so much for speaking with me. It's been an honor and a pleasure. Thank you, Richard, so much for your amazing insight and diligence and care. This has been Acts and Facts. I'm Richard Craft. My thanks to Charles Curtis for allowing me to use Captain Hume's Galliard by Tobias Hume as the theme music for this podcast. Mm-hmm.